Next on Contemplate. Sex was created by God as good, as good. Remember, sex existed before the fall. Sex was created by God as good. Your body was created by God as very good. As you can tell, this is going to be an important couple of episodes as Pastor David talks openly about the truth of God's plan for sex. Here's Pastor David. We no longer think that morality or ethics is a set of prohibitions particularly concerned with sex, writes Peter Singer, a professor of bioethics at Princeton University and a laureate professor of applied philosophy and public ethics at the University of Melbourne. He goes on, even religious leaders talk more about global poverty and climate change and less about promiscuity and pornography. Decisions about sex may involve considerations of honesty, concern for others, prudence, and so on, but there is nothing special about sex in this respect, for the same can be said of decisions about driving a car. In fact, he says, the moral issues raised by driving a car, both from an environmental and from a safety point of view, are much more serious than those raised by safe sex. This is the view that many people hold these days. Sex is no longer an issue of morality. What we do, who we do it with, and so on are simply choices that we make based on our own desires, not based on morality or ethics. Nancy Piercy is a philosopher, a very good one. She wrote a book recently called Love Thy Body. I highly recommend it. Quite a few of the points that, that I take my point of departure from here in this message come from that book in chapter four. So if you get a chance, Love Thy Body, good book to read. But she, she goes deeper on these issues. But one of the things she says, she writes about some interviews that a woman named Naomi Wolf did with some students. And here's what one young woman said. We are so tightly scheduled. Why get to know someone first? It is a waste of time. If you hook up, you can just get your needs met and get on your way. Proverbs says something about the adulterer, Proverbs 30, 20. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. Same for an adulterous man. Culture wanted to remove morality from sexuality as long ago as Proverbs. And culture wants to move, remove morality from sexuality today. Culture has moved so far that now the average age that a young man starts seeing pornography is nine years old. Nine years old. So you can imagine how much a young man in our culture today has taken in by the time he's able to marry or of the age to marry. But they're just told it's just bodies performing acts separated from emotion and feeling and certainly commitment. Sex is beginning to literally mean nothing to people. And this is not just young people or unbelievers, people outside the church or whatever. Uh, according to Nancy Piercy, she says this, a 16-year-old girl who had recently lost her virginity wrote on a Christian advice site, I don't think sex has anything to do with the fact that you're married or single. I think it's a choice each person has to make by asking themselves if they're prepared for the outcome if something goes wrong. 
Piercy also writes about a survey from the website Christian Mingle. This is a website where Christians that are singles that are looking for a Christian marriage can get together on. 61% of self-identified Christian singles said they were willing to have casual sex without being in love. Only 23% said they would have to be in love to have sex, and only 11% said they were waiting to have sex until they're married. Christian singles. Piercy mentions what she read in an article on the internet written by uh, someone from a Christian, conservative Christian college. She says this, once, or on the internet, I once came across an article advising college students on how to have a happy hookup. That's for those of you who aren't familiar with the language of hookup, it means we get together, we have sex, but there's no emotional connection to it, and we just go on our way afterwards. How to have a happy hookup. The author recommended getting clear consent and mutual agreement to engage in sexual acts. Then the whole hookup experience will be more positive for everyone involved. This is an author from a Christian college. Your job, my job, as the body of Christ is to give way better answers than the ones we have been giving the young and the old who want to know the truth. Way better answers. We have to take back what belongs to us as believers, as Christ followers. Sex. Something that God made. Good, wonderful sex. It's a good thing. I know that some of us are a little nervous talking about that in church, and that's the problem. That's the problem. Sex was created by God as good. As good. Remember, sex existed before the fall. Sex was created by God as good. Your body was created by God as very good. We have bought into lies about who we are, about who God is, and we failed to show each other in this area of our lives, we failed to show each other what's true. We've failed to show each other what it means to live a Christ-centered life in the truth. And we're leaving people unprotected. And I don't, that's not a pun. We're leaving people unprotected in the war that's raging for their hearts and their minds. We're leaving them unprotected because we're not giving them good, true answers to their questions regarding sex and sexual expression. Did you know that studies show that the most satisfied people sexually, this is what studies say, okay? The most satisfied people sexually are faithfully married, conservative Christian people in middle age. Faithfully married people are the most satisfied of any sexually active group. That's a fact. Consistently comes out. Now, why is it that faithfully married people are the most satisfied, but everything you watch or hear says that multiple anonymous partners, the Tinder, swipe left, right, I don't know how all that works, but that, that sex should be as often and with as many and as experimental and whatever is possible when the, when the research consistently comes back and says that married people who are faithful to one another have the best sex lives. Is that what you're hearing from your Netflix shows? It's not what I'm hearing. Nancy Piercy, again, she quotes this. This is good. The Puritan preacher William Perkins insisted that sex is as spiritual as preaching. Yea, deeds of matrimony are pure and spiritual, and whatsoever is done within the laws of God, though it be wrought by the body, yet are they sanctified. Sex is as spiritual as preaching. Now, I'm hoping that this is going to get more young people to want to become pastors. 
The point is, is that sex is not something for us to ignore or for us to let society define. Sexual morality is a fundamental call for those who follow Christ. Not because it's all about sex. It's so much deeper than that. There's so much more connected to it than that. But if we're going to follow Christ properly, we must learn to understand where we have been wrong, what lies we've believed, and what the truth is. We have to walk through that. You can't just, we can no longer just say, Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That's not helpful to those who are crying out with another message coming in their ears. Just don't do it. Just don't. Why? Just don't. That's not going to work anymore. It's not working. It hasn't worked. It's failed. Now, we've been in a series called Rooted uh, for several weeks now. We're going through 1 Thessalonians right now. And we're going to be in the same section this week that we were in last week. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and grab it out. Um, We're going to start getting into it. Um, And the reason we're in the same section this week that we were last week is because this truth that is in this passage is calling us to understand and fundamentally change the way that many of us see the world. It's calling us to understand and fundamentally change the way that many of us see the world. Let's start. We're in chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians, starting with verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. Remember, Paul, Timothy, Silas, the writing Thessalonians, they are jacked up and joyful because the Thessalonians have made it through persecution and they were very worried that they weren't gonna make it through persecution. So they're very joyful and they wanna thank God for them. And it says, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. They want to perfect what's lacking their faith. In other words, the Thessalonians' faith wasn't perfect yet. If you go back to last week's message, it's available online and on our website, on Vimeo, on all these places, I don't know. Um, But if you go back and listen to that, we talk a lot about what it means to perfect your faith and what would happen if your faith was perfected. But that's what he's looking to do. They didn't know everything yet. He's wanted to teach them more. And it says this, "Now now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. He's saying, listen, I want to perfect what's lacking in your faith. I want you to abound in love. I want you to learn how to love, because if you'll love, then God is going to establish your heart blameless, holy, pure. There's something about loving that helps people to be more perfect. So that's what he wants to do. We jump into chapter four, verse one. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He's hammering at home and he's saying, listen, this is the commandments of Jesus that I'm about to give you. You need to love. I'm going to show you what that looks like. Here are the commandments of Jesus. And this is what it says. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification, right? Clean, holy, set apart, pure. Your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality. It is God's will that for their sanctification, their being made holy, their being made pure, their being set apart, that they should not be sexually immoral. This has to be written to them, 
right? This would not go without saying for them any more than it goes without saying for the people in our culture today, including, as as we just read, lots of Christians who are very uh, confused about this issue, okay? It was a matter of regular uh, life in Thessalonica and in the Roman world that sexual immorality was rampant, prominent, just the way that people did things. The Romans did not value sexuality within a marriage. They didn't value God's design at all. Marriage was for status, children, and money. Sex was not about your husband or your wife. Sex was something that you went out and did oftentimes with slaves. They'd have slaves, and some of them would work in brothels. Sometimes people would have their own personal sex slaves. They would buy slaves, particularly for sex. That was the way that they lived. This is what the Thessalonians were used to. This wasn't just like, hey, there's sex slavery. We know about that now, right? That there is sex slavery that exists out there. But for them, it wasn't hidden behind with criminals. It was the culture. It was the society. People were sold into sex slavery. This was very normal. And that was how you got your sexual uh, appetites fulfilled. Not in a loving, committed marriage. None of that, right? Separate body from mind. You go in, you, you hang out with your sex slave, and you have sex. Now, here's the thing. The only word right now that seems to still have any connotation of morality, that still holds on to morality with sex, is the word consent. Like, we still at least, at least we still say there should be consent. I don't know how long until that goes away, but the, but the one vestige of morality that's around sex is consent. But even consent, which is absolutely necessary, Right? is a Christian concept, a purely Christian concept, even consent. Back in the day when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, it was about sex slavery. It was about forcing people to have sex. You didn't have rights. You didn't have, you didn't have the ability to consent. If you didn't consent, if, if your master came and said, do this, that, the other thing with me sexually, and you said no, they just kill you or send you into the Colosseum to be raped by gladiators. It was, that's what sex was, but it was Christians who had a high enough view of people to believe that we were made in the image and likeness of God who pushed back against non-consensual sex, non-consensual marriage, and all those kinds of things. Beth uh, Felkner Jones writes this, true consent was a rarity in the world in which Christianity got its start. Christianity, we might say, invented consensual sex when it developed a sex ethic that assumed that God empowers individuals with freedom. That's actually something that came from Christianity. The Romans did not see sex as something special and significant. So the Thessalonians wouldn't have come with that paradigm or that mindset or that worldview. It was a free-for-all. People were not valuable. Bodies were not valuable. It was Christ and his disciples and his followers to this day who have preached the message of the value of people and the moral obligation to treat people with respect in every way and when it comes to sex. We, we think of, of these things as kind of normal part of our culture, but these were completely countercultural ideas at the time. The idea that sex would be anything other than what it was, something that you did for fun to satisfy your body with other people's bodies, oftentimes without their consent, that, it, that sex would be something else, was an absolute culture shock to them, was absolutely pushing them back. And it's starting to be a culture shock again. Next verse, verse four. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Keep your body pure. 
Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. Here we see this truth about the value of your body, about the value of people being illustrated. Engaging in sexual immorality harms you and others. We're using words like you're defrauding, you're taking advantage of your brother or your sister. You're taking advantage of somebody. You know that the word used for sexual immorality in the Greek is a word porneia. We hear the word pornography. That's, that's one of the uh, roots of the word pornography. But actually the root of the word porneia or where it came from was actually from a word that means to buy. And really it specifically referenced harlotry, prostitution. The idea of buying and selling people's bodies to one another. That was the idea of porneia. So when we use words like, like uh, taking advantage of and defrauding, those words actually have real significance here because one of the things that God shows us is that sexuality outside of the context he has it for, which is sexual immorality, is like buying and selling. It's treating people as things, treating yourself and other people as things, acting as though there's something less than what they are. God did not call us, is verse 7, for God did not call us in uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. We've been called into holiness. We've been called into holiness. What does that look like? What is it saying? We've been called into purity. We've been called to be set apart. We've been called to give our bodies to put our bodies out as living sacrifices. That means we don't get to have every lust and every desire that we have doesn't get to be fulfilled because we're Christ followers now. And we're, we get to do it his way. Remember last week we talked about three dualisms. Now I'm gonna have the usher bring forth the quizzes on the three dualisms. <laughs> I'm not, don't worry. No one would ever come back here. There were three dualisms, okay? There was the fact value dualism, there was the secular sacred dualism, and there was the mind-body dualism. Now, I'm going to throw the first two out for now. I just want to focus on that last one, mind-body dualism. Just for reference, mind-body dualism is this idea that a person is really their mind, and that's separated from the body, right? That the body is unimportant, that the mind is what is important. Some people would, would go so far as to say that the body is evil, some people would look at the body like it's kind of like a robot, and the mind is the thing that sort of controls it, but the mind is who you are, the body is not. It's a dualism. It's a ripping apart of mind and body. And this evil idea is a direct lie against what God did when he created us. God made us as whole persons, body, soul, spirit, integrated whole persons. When we attempt to lessen the value of our bodies... We say that the image and likeness of God is not good when God said it's very good. When we do things to try to suggest that what we do with the body can be separated from the mind, the will, the emotions, and all of that, we are saying that God is wrong, that God did not make something good, and that we are not a unified whole like he is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, body, soul, spirit. We're saying that we aren't, we aren't made, or, or that we aren't made in his image and likeness, or if we were, it's a bad thing. As a philosopher named Rene Descartes, he was kicking it back in the 1600s. If you ever get to see a picture, he has really sweet hair. Um, French people in the 1600s dressed funny. Um, but he was a Christian, actually. 
And he wanted to separate what the scientists were dealing with from what the church dealt with. That was kind of his thing. He wanted to make sure that the church had its sphere, right? Make sure that that was good. So he wanted to separate the two things. And so he really bought into mind-body dualism. In fact, a lot of people call it Cartesian, Descartes, Cartesian dualism. He sort of made the compromise, right? This is what uh, T.Z. Levine says in his book, uh, From Socrates to Sartre, The Philosophic Quest. says this, Appeared to Descartes, mind-body dualism appeared to Descartes to effect a compromise and reconciliation between the church and scientists. Okay? It's a bad way to start to begin, but that's what they wanted to do. To each its own jurisdiction. To the scientists, matter and its mechanical loss of motion. To the theologians, mental substance, the souls of human beings. This has been called the Cartesian compromise. Let science deal with the body. Let religion deal with the mind, and we'll treat them as though they're separate things, separate substances that come together for a purpose but are not united, are not truly united. And as with all compromises, all compromises that are based on misunderstandings of Scripture and nature and who we are and who God is, anytime we compromise because of a misunderstanding of those things, it turns out very badly. And this compromise, a Cartesian compromise, has led to Horrible results. Horrible results. In fact, the entire sexual revolution is driven by mind-body dualism. The whole thing is driven, it's based on, it's anchored in mind-body dualism. If there wasn't for mind-body dualism, the sexual revolution would have nowhere to stand, nowhere to bring its ideas from. And what exactly are the sexual revolutionists revolting against? They're revolting against the truth that God made us in his image and likeness. They're revolting against the truth that the body is part of the person. They're revolting against the idea that the body is valuable. And they use mind-body dualism to give them a structure for that revolt. This has been going on since the beginning. Satan has been lying about who we are from the beginning. Did God really say? Did God really say that you shouldn't do this thing? Oh, no, no, no. He just wants to keep you from being like him. You'll want to be sure and join us next time as Pastor David concludes this important teaching. And the thing we want to leave you with today is that no matter what has gone on in your life, there is forgiveness, hope, and peace in Christ. And we would love to help you find it. Give us a call at 360-885-9000 or send us an email. Use info at axchurchnw.org. Well, that's it for today, and we'll look for you on our next episode with Pastor David Robinson here on Contemplate.